VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshatrati from Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt. We are at crunch time in the negotiations. We fought hard. We've had a series of very challenging conversations. And we moved the world on funding for loss and damage. We have finally responded to the call of hundreds of millions of people across the world. However, a clear commitment to phase out all fossil fuels, not in this text, and the energy text weakened in the final minutes. The developed countries have implicitly stated that the lives of our peoples are negotiable. They are not. The last few days of COP have been chaos. Drafts were floated back and forth, adding to delays. Protesters camped outside negotiation halls, demanding progress. And the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, made a last-minute intervention to try and bring nations together on an agreement. And there was an agreement, reached at 5 a.m. on Sunday, November 20th. COP27 was supposed to be the implementation COP, the African COP. And for our final episode of Zero from Egypt, we'll be hearing from two people working to finance the clean energy transition in Africa. Rebecca Shirley, Director of Research, Data and Innovation at the World Resources Institute, and Maktar Diop, Director of the World Bank's International Finance Corporation and the former Minister of Finance and Economy of Senegal. But first, I'm joined by my colleague Siobhan Wagner, Greens Editor based in London, to talk about the news, and Will Kennedy, Senior Executive Editor for Energy and Commodities on his reflections and what happens next. Shawan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, we've been up for 27 hours straight. Um, So a little bit tired, but we have a deal. What were the last 27 hours like? Well, I think we were all surprised as the way the deal came out. Um, The fact that it was agreed so quickly at the beginning, I think we all had a bit of whiplash (laughs) with that. And it probably took us a little time to to process that actually this this had happened, you know, I mean, considering that the lead up to this cop like was said to be the contentious issue of loss and damage and the controversial issue of loss and damage. And then all of a sudden it's unanimously voted in and it just kind of made you really wonder what all those big questions were about, you know. And the big holdup was even though loss and damage fund was agreed upon by the countries and without any intervention from any country, uh, there was expected to be a walkout from the European Union because there wasn't enough to try and reduce emissions so that we could keep on track for 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. Why did we not see a walkout? It's interesting because we, we were talking about that afterwards. And I, I think we were all kind of under the impression that, you know, it could have made the European Union look a little bit like a bully, you know, like kind of holding the negotiations hostage, you know, um, and especially something like loss and damage with everything that's happened in Pakistan this year um, to kind of 
say that you're going to withhold funds, you know, and when you look at this, these sort of sort of humanitarian situations, I, yeah, I think it just from a PR perspective, it would have been terrible. Indeed. And what we heard was that there was a lot of pushback from fossil fuel producers. Uh, Annalena Baerbock, who's the foreign minister of Germany, said that fossil fuel producers resisted language around reducing emissions, which did not make it into the final text, such as peaking emissions by 2025 or phasing out all fossil fuels. Um, And so there was a sense of defeat in a way. Now, two weeks of covering this, actually more than that, what was your experience like? Well, I mean, it's interesting because the everyone kind of pays attention towards the end because that's the kind of where the, the climax and where all the drama builds up to. But weirdly, after being here for two weeks, the end was the least interesting bit for me. I found <laughs> everything else around this conference to be the more interesting thing. The fact, you know, you have just representatives from all over the world under one roof, just things like um, China and the US kind of reinstituting their diplomatic relations, the JetP deals that we saw um, being made with, uh, so South Africa having their coal transition deal being signed off on massive announcement with Indonesia, a $20 billion deal to transition the country off of coal and another one set to come in in Vietnam. The other kind of exciting thing leading up to all this really was, was Lula, which was um, quite interesting. You know, the, um, the kind of rock star treatment he got, you know, I joked with one of my colleagues because she was talking about, you know, all the people that were kind of, you know, dancing and chanting when he came in. And I said, well, I don't think, uh, you know, President Biden got anyone dancing in their seat, did he, when um, when, when he arrived. Um, things that might be seen as the sideshow, I, I actually found much more interesting than the actual deal that was that was being done. Thanks so, for coming on the show. Thank you. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Akshat. Great to be with you. Now, this is your first COP. You uh, run the energy team here at Bloomberg News, uh, one of the largest teams that we have. Um, You spend the entire two weeks here. What's your experience been like? It's a completely unique event, unlike anything that I've ever covered before in my career. I've covered OPEC meetings and big conferences, but just the range of people is is completely different to anything else. You've got politicians, of course, you've got activists, you've got campaigners, academics, you've got young people, and you've got people from all over the world, truly. It feels like a global event, unlike any other I've attended. And of course, uh, this is about climate change and trying to figure out how to keep temperatures under control. Uh, But a lot of conversation is around energy and not just within the negotiations, but even outside. Yeah, energy is to the fore for a couple of reasons, I think. Obviously, one of the big differences between this COP and Glasgow is that we've had a big global energy crisis since. So people are talking a lot about how to fit the climate agenda into the short-term energy agenda? Does that mean you go slower on abating fossil fuels? Does that mean you go quicker? And it's become almost like a Davos for energy people. And one thing that we started to see, perhaps controversially, is more energy industry people at this COP. Obviously, the Saudi Arabia is well represented. They have this big Saudi Green Initiative. The UAE will be hosting the next COP and they're very well represented. We've had oil executives here, including the head of Total, the head of BP. There are a lot of renewable companies. And you're starting to 
get the impression that people come here to meet, to do deals, to talk energy policy, to interact with policymakers. Um, and I think to some long-time COP participants, that's rather against the spirit. But I think it does also show how central climate, climate policy is becoming to uh, business, finance, investing. And now we are going to be heading next year to uh, another Middle Eastern country, this time the UAE. Uh, we'll move from being an Africa COP to an Asia COP, even though it's only uh, a few hundred miles uh, away. What are your expectations? Having been to this COP, I feel sure that it's going to be a very big event for several reasons. It's a big diplomatic moment for the UAE, uh, a very ambitious country, a country that wants to assert itself in the world, and this is a chance for it to have a diplomatic showpiece. Now, obviously, they're a controversial decision to host it in the UAE because they are one of the world's largest oil producers. They produce about 4 million barrels of oil every day. That is a source of their wealth. Now, they will argue with some justification that uh, they're also investing a lot in renewable energy, which is true. Um, but they're great advocates of this idea that the world needs all forms of energy. Um, so they come with a message which is controversial to some people in the COP community. But I also think they will organize a big event, a very well-organized event, event that they'll be determined to make successful. Dubai is a global hub, so it will be easy for people to get there, to find places to stay. So I think it will be bigger than Egypt, and I suspect we will see a lot more, even more of the stuff I was talking about earlier about of executives being here, of it being a real meeting of the energy climate world across business and finance as well as policy people. Um, so it's going to be a big one. Now, this energy climate world, they've been separate for some time, even though physically it makes no sense. You cannot tackle climate without dealing with emissions that are generated from energy and you cannot uh, meet the world's goals if you uh, don't have all the energy you need. Are COP meetings the place where you're seeing this overlap really come together so that we can find a way forward? I hope that that's true. I think there are reasons to think perhaps clearly there are fossil fuel actors who are moving into uh, the renewable space, who are engaging with climate to a greater or lesser extent. We can see that when we look at some of the green initiatives uh, proposed by Saudi Arabia and other Middle East countries. We can hold them to account, of course, but they see them as meaningful uh, policy agendas. We can see that when we look at some of the global oil companies and the investments that they're making in renewable energy. And we can see that in the way that the investment community is thinking about what projects it finances and importantly, what projects it doesn't finance. There are going to be arguments about what people's true intentions are. There are always going to be arguments about whether fossil fuel companies can have any role to play, whether fossil fuel countries should have any role to play. Um, and those arguments are entirely legitimate. But it does seem to me that there is at COP a sort of nexus for all those different interests forming. Whether that lasts, I think, will depend on how much uh, momentum the process maintains. I think it will depend on how serious some countries stay about the climate policy agenda. But right now, you can sort of see this meshing into one big energy climate nexus. Thanks, Will. We'll be back with uh, another two-week grind next year. See you in Dubai, actually. <laughs> Thank you.
The African continent has the fastest growing population in the world and needs resources to fund both its basic energy needs and a transition to clean energy. And yet it attracts just a tiny fraction of the funding, less than 1% of renewable spending globally, according to Bloomberg NEF, went to Africa, even as it represents 7% of the global economy. After the break, we hear from two people working to change that. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Joining me now is Rebecca Shirley, the Director of Research Data and Innovation at the World Resources Institute, who talks about the bottleneck slowing a green energy transition across Africa. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Now, a lot of what's happening at the COP meeting this time, but usually is the case with COP meetings, is talking about money and how rich countries will pay for the transition, but also maybe climate impacts happening in poor countries. That seems like a simple, straightforward thing. If you look at the moral responsibility, the historical burden of emissions, all of that should just happen. And yet it doesn't. And when it does, it happens in complicated ways. So uh, maybe let's just start there. Why is it that rich countries find it so, so hard to put forward small amounts of money? than they really should be. Thank you so much for that question. You've gotten right to the heart of the issue. For the benefit of the audience, let me paint a picture of what the financing landscape looks like today. Because as you rightfully pointed out, to finance a transition to low carbon systems and landscapes globally, we are trying to finance for mitigation. We're trying to finance for adaptation, for loss and damage, for low carbon technologies, for buildings. For There's so much that really needs to be financed. So the, the best available information, the best available estimates from our research partners at CPI put the price tag at something like four to five trillion per annum out to 2040. Today, we're at somewhere around 600 billion. Um, so we're really falling short of, of, of the financial package. The thing that I'll say on top of that is we're still financing, we're still putting, pumping something around 900 billion into fossil fuels at the same time. So as a globe, we are still spending more today on fossil fuels than we are on climate. That's number one. Number two, when you break down that 600 billion and think about where it's flowing to, two things. One, very little of it is flowing to the global south. And two, oftentimes the financial flows are staying within the country of origin. So 
together that means that we're actually seeing very little of that trickling down to the countries that are most vulnerable, most in need of urgent funds for adaptation. If we bring it even closer to home, to Africa, of that 600 billion, we're receiving about 19 billion. 19 out of the 600. And as, of course, as everyone loves to say, this is one of the regions that is most vulnerable globally. Um, of, that, of that 19 billion, uh, to trickle down even further, or to look a little bit even further, only about 2 billion of that is private. Right. So 17 billion is, is, is public sector funds coming to the continent. Very little private sector investment. And so this becomes a really big challenge and it becomes a big challenge from the negotiation space as well. So why is it so hard to put forward money? Well, let me explain why that is the case from a point of view of energy, because the energy transitions in Africa have become such a very central theme to the global climate discussion. And I think that that's going to transfer to a lot of other spaces like adaptation and so on. The African continent is perhaps the continent that, that, that's most in need of financing for, for energy transitions. Why? Because, of course, as we all know, we're standing at a very, very low base for energy access. In fact, energy access is almost becoming an exclusively African issue. We are nine out of 10 persons that still on earth today don't have basic electricity and clean cooking services. We have a price tag. The SE for All has put a price tag on, on this, something about 120 billion per year out of 2040 needed just on energy access. But when you unpack what the opportunities are, it's not for lack of resources on the continent. The solar is amazing. The wind is amazing. Hydro amazing. Geothermal is amazing. We've got a lot of resources. So you ask yourself, well, if you've got this big demand, 600 million still without access, if you've got all the, these amazing resources, why aren't investors toppling over themselves to come and invest here? You've got demand and you've got amazing resources. And as we all know, renewables are at the levelized cost cheaper than, than fossil fuels today. Well, the answer to that question is that it's not as simple as the upfront cost of technology. You have to think about the layers of the onion. Because on, on top of the cost of your solar panels, your balance of system for setting up a solar system, there is the cost of the capital itself. Now, what that means is the cost that you have to take on as a developer to access the finance to then go and deploy your systems. And on the continent, we have very high cost of capital. They range up to as much as 40%, 38 to 40% in some of our Central African countries. So imagine if you're trying to take out a loan for a home and your interest rate is 30%. Can you afford that home? No, you can't afford that home. And the challenge is that for a lot of our climate solutions, including renewables, they're highly sensitive to this cost of capital because they need upfront costs. And so that's one of the big challenges Finance doesn't flow naturally to the continent because of risk perceptions, because of foreign exchange issues, right? You take out a loan in U.S. dollars, but you're paying it back in your local currency, which is oftentimes depreciated and then depreciating, as we're seeing now with the Ukraine crisis. And then on top of that, we have the challenge of not having grid systems that are, are really ready for very massive rollout of renewables um, because you need to have a really resilient, a really um, sturdy transmission distribution system to absorb that level of renewable capacity. And then thirdly, I would say part of the challenge is that once you've built systems, we don't have ready off takers for those systems, industry, commerce, enterprise. 
And so the payback periods can be very, very long. And for investors, you might as well put that money somewhere else where you're going to get a faster rate of return, maybe seven years or less, where here, as we might be talking about more. So I know that was a long-winded answer well, to your but question. A, but is it a chicken and an egg problem, given right, that um, right. you are saying there is demand because clearly people don't have electricity. Yes. But then you're also saying there are not enough off-takers. Yes. What does that mean? The, you've hit the nail right on the head. And it seems like a very weird paradox, right? That there are people that want power, communities that want power, but developers saying, I don't have anyone to take the power away. We can't assume that once you build a system that naturally the next day, the uh, the ability to absorb that power will, will exist. Because what you would need is at the same time as we're developing generation and expanding generation, we have to be thinking about the commercial, industrial and enterprise space. And we don't have, again, for the, the, it's the same chicken and egg, because we don't have very reliable power, we don't have very big commercial industrial sectors, because we don't have very many commercial industrial customers, <laughs> it's difficult to make the investments on the power and on grid. So we're really in this sort of like chicken and egg. And what do we need to do to get ourselves out of that and then pivot ourselves into a virtuous cycle where we have off-takers that then make the economics of energy delivery more efficient, which then means that we have more off-takers. And to pivot into that virtuous cycle, we really need far more investment in the commercial and industrial space across the continent. So we're talking about light manufacturing, heavier manufacturing, we're talking about textiles, we're talking about small and medium-sized enterprises in agriculture. So the, it's, it's ironic that the answer to the energy access and the energy finance question lies in supporting economy. And we have very little finance flowing into that space for the reasons that we talked about earlier. And are there countries, given how diverse uh, Africa is as a continent, um, where things are going in the right direction? Yes, yes. I think what we're seeing at this COP, which is different from last year's COP, is that African countries are starting to realize we have to come to the table with an investment package that investors can say, I see the whole picture. It's not just the generation side. You've, you've, you've also um, put industry, put, put commerce into this. So full packages are starting to come to the table. We have transition packages now from South Africa. Of course, as we're all familiar, the South African Just Energy Transitions Pledge. Next was Nigeria, who's doing a great job at this COP uh, securing investment in its energy transition plan. We have Senegal, we have Ghana, we have Kenya. We have a lot of countries realizing that we need to put together these almost whole of economy packages for investors to, to react to. And when we do that in aggregate, it makes the exercise much easier so that we're actually not just talking about finance, we're talking about partnership. Uh, partnership in building out economy in Africa and in African countries. Wonderful. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. We are joined next by Maktar Diop, who is the director of the International Finance Corporation, which is part of the World Bank Group and provides over $30 billion each year in loans to the private sector in developing countries to bring more climate-focused finance into the continent. Welcome to the show, Maktar. Yes, yeah, a pleasure to be here. Now, tell us what the uh, IFC does. IFC is a premier institution when it comes to financing the private sector in developing countries. 32.8 billion is what we landed last year. One third of it is going to climate change and uh, one third of it is going to Africa. So that's basically in a nutshell what IFC is. But what is it that as a development financial institution, 
uh, it actually does? Like what is a loan relative to a, a private industry doing? Maybe give me an example through a project. So what we are doing is that we, in the past, people were thinking that uh, the public sector was the only solution to developmental issues. And uh, the, the word came clearly to a realization that, in fact, most of the solution will be coming from the private sector. But often, the private sector doesn't have the tools or knowledge, the intelligence to know what is happening in the most remote place in the world. So they need to have uh, people who help them do this investment. So what we're doing is that we're bringing our resources because we are represented in a lot of countries. We have a lot of knowledge of what is happening in the country, understand the risk, and we are mobilizing resources. For each dollar that we put, we mobilize one dollar for the capital market. An example would be if it's a billion dollar solar power plant being built in Senegal, and IFC is involved in that, then IFC will give 500 million as a, as a loan and private capital will bring in 500 million. Is that roughly? Exactly, but let me, let me come here to Egypt where we are. Ben Ban Park was one of the, the, the leading investment in this country, it was IFC. Ben Ban Park is one of the world's largest solar parks located in Aswan in Southern Egypt with a capacity of generating 1.8 gigawatts of electricity, enough to power more than a million Egyptian homes. A lot of people don't, don't know that, but we were the one who launched it. We are, tomorrow, we're going to our board with another $1 billion investment in renewable for Egypt, and the same amount for Jordan. So that is a today, now, example of, of what we are doing. When it comes to other solar industry, we launched a few years ago what we call scaling up solar, which was an initiative, because when developers were coming to countries in Africa, it takes a long time to develop a project. It's costly. They don't know the. So we have a kind of standardized contract, standardized template that was presented to the investors and that allows them to narrow the time needed to prepare a project and reduce their cost. So when we are doing two things, we're bringing money, but also we help the, the capital market in general to better appreciate the risk in countries they are not familiar with. And so we talked about solar. What kind of other projects, uh, climate-related, do you uh, finance? The, the two projects that we are taking to the board uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, one is solar, the other one is wind. Okay. So we are doing a lot of wind, and we are planning also to do more of uh, green hydrogen, not only for the energy side, but also for something which is very important today, which is fertilizers. So we know that uh, a big element of the food crisis has been uh, the lack of availability of fertilizer. And, uh, but, but sometimes that people don't talk about something else, is that some of these uh, fertilizer can be the problem in terms of, uh, of climate change and sustainability. Right, and just for context, uh, ammonia most of the time is made uh, from combining nitrogen, which is plentiful in the atmosphere, uh, with hydrogen. But that hydrogen right now comes from natural gas. And when natural gas prices are high, just as it is the case right now, uh, that makes fertilizer very expensive, and many fertilizer companies Companies, especially in Europe, have shut down because they couldn't buy uh, natural gas at the price. And so allowing for use of green hydrogen, which can be made just from renewables uh, and water, allows you to make ammonia absolutely. at cheaper prices. Absolutely, actually, because it's something that uh, I, I didn't go through the process, uh, but it's important that to remind to, to people who will be listening how it's, it's happening. But it's, it's a golden opportunity for countries which were not part of that supply chain and value chain to play uh, an important role. Just picture it, Senegal, Morocco, Egypt, all these countries which are endowed today with renewable energy will be able to be major player 
in, in, in the production of ammoniac or the product related to, to it. Not only we are bringing capital, but we are helping structurally transform the economy and create jobs, which is something that is very important in our objectives. Now, let's talk about the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is a group of private uh, companies uh, in financial institutions, banks and pension funds, etc., that want to help move money towards a net zero goal. These are all private institutions that you have worked with uh, in some capacity. What kind of questions are they asking you? Uh, when they want to figure out the best places to put their money towards this transition? So number one is de-risking. De-risking, de-risking, de-risking. We are facing a lot of headwinds. High inflation, war in Ukraine, high interest rate in a more advanced economy. Strong dollar. Strong dollar. Uh, so you have a currency mismatch and all this kind of thing. So today, people have an incentive to actually move their money from emerging economies to safe assets, usually euro or dollar denominated. So how can we reverse that, that new trend? Is by de-risking and by giving uh, and the type of instruments that we are providing in de-risking is a first loss guarantee, partial risk guarantee, currency swap, and this type of, of things which are uh, very important for investors. That's the first thing. Second, second is intelligence linked to the understanding of what is happening in those countries. You have people in Wall Street or in a, uh, at the city in London who want to invest money, but they don't have time, they don't have the resources to look at those markets. So we are providing signal or, or, or which are very powerful. And one of the signal is our own investment. So in fact, our uh, own investment, we are seeing it much more a catalyst to bring more investment uh, from the capital market in these countries because our ability to assess the risk properly, our institution is a kind of guarantee of, uh, of safe investment. Actually, we have very low level of non-performing law, very, very low level. We shows that we know what we are doing in investment. Now, the finance gap, which is the amount of money that needs to go uh, toward the transition is very clearly a developing market gap. If you look at how much money needs to be spent in developed countries, those numbers are just about there, uh, but it's really developing countries where the money needs to go. And through the examples we've talked about, you're clearly filling a gap. But the amounts you're loaning and the amounts you're multiplying is still quite limited. In 2017, you had $26 billion that was, that was committed, and that's gone up to $31.5 billion last year. Say in 2025, how much do you expect to have been committed in loans? Will it go up from $32 billion to $60 billion? That's my ambition. Will it happen? Uh, let's work hard for it. Who do you have to convince? I have to convince people to put more blended finance. Where will it come from? It comes from philanthropy, it comes from countries. You're not going to get uh, more money being committed from governments towards IFC? I'm asking for it, and I hope that it will happen. And who is the bottleneck there? Which are the main countries that you have to convince? Let's be realistic. The world is facing a, a difficult situation. So a lot of countries also have some, a lot of the, of the challenges to, to address some of the social needs that their population are, are raising. But I do believe that there's a link between uh, uh, what the population are, uh, is facing immediately 
and climate change is becoming uh, more and more obvious. So countries, I think, will be, while addressing this, the immediate challenge that they are facing with their population, will also make the effort to be able to, to bring more blended finance so that we can address climate change. We've talked about a lot of solutions, and one of the, the themes here at COP27 has been how will money come to those solutions? So the work you're doing is absolutely crucial. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Zero, and I hope you've enjoyed our episodes from COP27 and got a sense of what it's like to attend one of the world's largest meetings discussing one of the world's most urgent problems. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. Tell a friend or tell an investment banker. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Kira Bindran. I'm Akshat Rati, back with our regular weekly episodes from Thursday. <laughs>